Well, a few years ago, uh, a medical doctor by the name of Alex Lickerman uh, wrote a blog article entitled Overcoming the Fear of Death, in which he reveals his deep personal uh, wrestling with his own mortality. Um, He speaks of a series of physical ailments that he had uh, a couple of years before he had written this article um, that brought him closer to death than he had ever uh, really imagined being. Uh, And in the years since this experience, though his body has healed from the trauma of uh, a few years before, he has been forced to reckon uh, with the reality that one day, just like every other human being, he will, in fact, die. Lickerman says, I'm always surprised by people who say they're not afraid to die. Most are usually quick to point out that they are afraid to die painfully, but not of the idea of no longer being alive. And I've always wondered if that answer hides a denial so deeply seated it cannot be faced by most. He continues, certainly this has been the case with me. I love being here and don't want to leave. Whenever I've tried wrapping my mind around the concept of my own demise, truly envisioned the world continuing on without me, the essence of what I am utterly gone forever, I've unearthed a fear so overwhelming my mind has been turned aside, as if my imagination and the idea of my own end were two magnets of identical polarity, unwilling to meet, no matter how hard I tried to make them. Now, Dr. Lickerman believes that when a person dies, his soul simply ceases to exist. That's a view known as annihilationism, if you're uh, keeping track. Uh, And so his fears of death are certainly founded. If you're going to die and just cease to exist, that's pretty frightening. To die is to end, to cease to be. What about you? Are you afraid to die? Do you wonder whether there's anything on the other side of death, any life after death? And if there is, do you find yourself ever feeling anxious, imagining what sort of existence this might be? What is it going to look like? What am I going to look like or feel like? What, what is that life going to be like? Well, for the follower of Jesus, these questions don't need to be the source of fear and anxiety. In fact, the Christian faith, and in particular the reality of Easter, provides crystal clear answers to these questions and meets our anxiety and fear with rock-solid hope of a glorious future to come. I'd like to invite you to turn in your copy of the scriptures to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament, so we're in the back half of the Bible. You've got the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then a couple of books later, 1 Corinthians. Corinthians. Um, I don't have the page number on that ESV story Bible, um, so hopefully you can locate it. 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to focus today on the final eight verses of this chapter, verses 50 through 58. But before we read those verses, I need to give you a little bit of an overview of what came before them. The whole chapter of uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is kind of an extended reflection on the resurrection. It's an extended reflection on Jesus rising from the dead and what it means for our lives and eternity. And so I'll give you a little, a brief kind of walk through chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians up until our verses for today. So the first thing that the Apostle Paul, writing this letter, does is establish the historical reliability of the resurrection. 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he says, took place in accordance with the Scriptures, down in verse 1 through 11. And so he says he, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, he was raised according to the Scriptures, and then he appeared to Peter and the other apostles, and then to more than 500 people at one time. And so the reliability of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead uh, is, uh, is trustworthy. And so he says, this really happened, right? It was accordance with Scripture, and it has been uh, witnessed by uh, hundreds of people. In verses 12 through 19, Paul emphasizes the fundamental necessity of the resurrection, and some pretty surprising, surprisingly strong statements about, uh, about the Christian faith and about the resurrection. He says, if Jesus has not been raised, then our faith is in vain. We have been lying about God by saying that he, in fact, did raise Jesus from the dead. We are still in our sins. Christians who have died have actually perished forever because there's no resurrection. And we, as Christians, are more pitiful. He says, to be pitied more than any other people on earth, because this hope that we're placing all of our eggs in this basket, right, our hope has proved to be a sham. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, the entire Christian faith crumbles like a house of cards. So the whole Christian faith hinges on the reality of Easter. Easter is that important. In verses 12 to 28, Paul celebrates the life-altering truth that in the resurrection, Jesus defeated death, which he calls the last enemy to be destroyed. Then he goes on to say that, again, if Jesus has not been raised, if death has not been defeated, then our risks that we take for the gospel, the work that we do for God is utterly useless and unnecessary, actually foolish. And so, in fact, we ought to, he says, just eat and drink and be merry because there's nothing else coming. There's, we, we know that there's nothing else to hope for, so we might as well just live it up have a gale time while we're here. In verses 35 through 49, now we're getting a bit closer to where we're going to camp out today. Paul speaks of the future resurrection that will be experienced by every follower of Jesus at the return of the Lord. Just as a seed dies, he gives this analogy of like a wheat plant. Just as a seed has to die when it's placed in the earth, you bury it in the earth and it actually decomposes as a seed before it sprouts forth new life as a head of wheat. So it is with human beings who know Jesus as Lord. Though their body dies and begins to decay in the earth, yet one day when Jesus returns, their body will be raised, reunited with their souls, and recreated in a new and glorious form. That all sounds a little weird, but it's also amazing. And that is where we're going to be camping out today. That leads us to the final celebration of chapter 15 and verses 50 through 58. So I'm going to read those aloud. Please follow along in your copy of the scriptures. I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. This perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. 
when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the puts on immortality then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory o death where is your victory o death where is your sting the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to god who gives us the victory through our lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let the hope of Easter spur you on to good deeds and gospel ministry. Let the hope of Easter fuel your work for the Lord. I think that's the point that Paul is trying to make here in this extended reflection on the resurrection and its reality in our lives and for our future. Let this Easter hope come into our hearts and settle in our lives in such a way that we are inspired, compelled, and driven out to work for the Lord. Let all fear and anxiety over an uncertain future be washed away in the light of the eternal glory stored up for us through Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And then let that confident hope fuel our work for Jesus until he returns to take us home. Okay, but how? How do we get this Easter hope in our minds and down into our hearts in such a way that it will compel this kind of living, this kind of risk-taking others-centered, kingdom-of-God-oriented kind of life? How can we have hope for life after death? What will life in God's kingdom be like? How should the resurrection of Jesus make a difference in how I live my everyday life? What hope, indeed, does Easter provide? And so we tackle those questions as we march through these verses together. So there's two hopes that I think we see in these verses And then there is a response to the hope. Hope number one. The hope of Easter is that you will be immortal. The hope of Easter is that you will become immortal. You've always wanted it. You've always dreamed about it. You've always thought about having superpowers and stuff. I'm not saying you're going to have superpowers. But you're going to be immortal. He says there in verse 50, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That is flesh and blood, human bodies and souls as they exist now in their current form, they don't have the capacity to accommodate the glories of God's kingdom fully and finally established. He says, nor can the perishable inherit the imperishable. So our bodies are temporary. Our bodies are perishable, right? And we know they're perishable because when they go into the ground, they decay over time, right? So the perishable can't take on the imperishable realities of the kingdom of God. Now, you have some capacity for glory. Don't get me wrong. You can see a beautiful sunset and and be moved. You can hear a familiar song and feel kind of whisked away back home or back to an older time. You can see a movie, a touching story unfold on the screen and find tears in your eyes. Now, not me, of course. I I never, never cry in movies. Just kidding. Um, But your capacity for glory must change 
in order to experience the kingdom of God. So he says the perishable can't take on the imperishable. And the kingdom of God is a bigger, broader, more beautiful, more glorious reality than we could possibly even fathom, much less actually take into our temporal decaying bodies. So your capacity must change. And in fact, he tells us in verse 21, I tell you a mystery, we shall all be changed. We shall all be changed. Now, I think there's two ways, at least, in which we're going to be changed. One is a change in degree. Here's what I mean by that. If you have a 12-ounce glass, how much water will that 12-ounce glass hold? 12 ounces of water. What happens if I have a gallon of water and I pour that gallon into my 12-ounce glass? What's going to happen? Where's the water going? It's going to spill. You're right, William. It's going all over the place, right? It's to the brim, and it's just, that's right, it's overflowing. It's, it's, I've made a big mess, right? And I've got to call one of my kids to come and mop it up. So if you've got a 12-ounce glass of water and you're pouring in a gallon of water, you, it can't handle it. It has to, you need what? What do you need to get a gallon of water in it? You need a bigger glass. That's a pretty big, I've never said gallon cup, but um, you need a bigger container to hold the entire gallon of water. And in just the same way, we have to have an expanded capacity. Our bodies and our souls and our emotions and our minds have to grow in some way to be able to see and to experience the fullness of the kingdom of God. And we're also going to change in kind in kind. Now that means a different, we're, we're able to take in some glory, some kind of glory here in this temporal life, but in heaven, in God's eternal kingdom, there's a glory of an altogether different kind that we have to be fitted for. If you went to a five-star restaurant and you ordered the most expensive thing on the menu and they brought it to you on a paper plate and you ordered this fancy wine and they brought it to you in a red Solo cup. Something isn't fitting here, right? You've got the wrong kind of container for this glorious, beautiful, fancy, expensive meal, right? So you've got to upgrade from the paper plate kind of existence to a fine china that can actually handle, uh, that, that is more fit for the kind of food that you're placing on it. So in the same way, our bodies and souls and emotions, our very being will, will be upgraded. It's going to change. It's going to grow. It's going to expand in order to take in the glories of heaven. Now, that change is going to happen at a particular moment and in a particular sequence. Paul tells us there uh, in verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. So that's when we're going to be changed. That's the moment that the change happens is at the last trumpet. What in the world does that mean? And if you were to look over in 1 Thessalonians, another letter of the Apostle Paul, you would find that he says in verse 15 through 17, he is encouraging his brothers and sisters, his brothers and sisters at the church in Thessalonica not to grieve without hope for those who have died, for loved ones, for followers of Jesus who have died, he says, we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, which is a euphemism for death. 
those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So those Christians who have passed away, they will be the first ones resurrected and changed when Jesus returns. So the moment, the twinkling of an eye, the sound of the trumpet is the return of Jesus Christ. You know Jesus is returning, right? He came once, the book of Hebrews tells us, to deal with sin. But when he comes again, he's bringing us home. He's ushering in his kingdom, and it's going to be a changed and a glorious kind of existence forevermore. That is what is happening. And so when he says, at the last trumpet, he is saying, the moment of Jesus' return is the moment of this change. And then the sequence is what he just told us in 1 Thessalonians, that first, the dead in Christ, Christians, followers of Jesus who have passed away, they're going to be the first ones raised and changed and reunited with their soul and in the presence of Jesus. And then those who happen to be still living when Jesus decides to return. We don't know when that's going to be. Of course, the scriptures don't tell us that. And no amount of trying to find codes and decipher little clues and stuff within the scriptures is going to tell you when Jesus is going to return. In fact, people have done that, spent years and decades and entire careers on attempting to discern what moment Jesus is coming back. And it won't happen. In 1988, there was a book that came out it was called 1,988 Reasons That Jesus Will Return in 1988. Well, if he returned in 1988, most of us missed it, right? So obviously it didn't happen. The next year, the same guy published 1,989 Reasons That Jesus Will Return in 1989. Who published this book? I don't know how you possibly get that book published. Anyway, we have no idea when it's going to come, but when it comes, we're going to be changed in an instant. We're going to be glorified, like Romans chapter 8, verse 29 tells us. All those that God justified, that is made right before him through faith, he will also glorify. We're going to have this expanded capacity. Brothers and sisters, this ought to affect the way that we view and treat other people. Don't you think? The realization that every human being is being fitted for eternity, either an eternity in God's presence, in God's kingdom, in joy, or an eternity apart from him, enduring the wrath stored up for them. This ought to affect how we interact with other human beings on a daily basis. C.S. Lewis said in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, he says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, or exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Now this does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. Friends, the hope of Easter is that you will be immortal. 
Those who name Jesus as Lord and trust him as Savior have a glorious future in a glorified, resurrected body awaiting them. That's what Easter means for us, in part. It means that we have glory coming for us. Hope number two. The hope of Easter is that death has lost its power. Death has lost its power. The resurrection of Jesus dealt the death blow to death itself. There's an Andrew Peterson song where he says, Jesus has beaten death at death's own game. I like that line. Look at verse 54 with me in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality. In other words, after the change that we just read about in verses 50 to 53, after these changes have taken place at the return of Jesus, continuing, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death. And then we get some trash talk to death. Death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? Is that the best you got? This is Lieutenant Dan. You call this a storm, right? Is that the best you've got, death? That's all you can do? Where's your, you got no sting. Your power has been removed. Just as a honeybee dies once it stings, so death will simply run out of the ability to sting anymore. Because Jesus died and rose again, the very power of death has been broken. And so we have here two Old Testament quotations. The first one is Isaiah 25, 8, where he says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Oh, that's beautiful. Don't you look forward to a day when God himself wipes all tears away? There's no heartache. There's no loss. There's no separation. There's no grief. There's no crying. There's no pain. God wipes it away because death is swallowed up forever. The second Old Testament quotation, which is really kind of more of a paraphrase, is from Hosea 13, 14. The prophet says, I shall ransom them, that is the people of God, from the power of Sheol. Sheol is like the place of the dead kind of an intermediate place where dead people are said to go. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Now, I don't think this is merely figurative. I don't think that Paul is just being poetic here. I think the promise of Isaiah 25.8 and the promise of Hosea 13.14 is that God will literally bring an end to death. There simply will not be dying anymore. Nobody will die ever again. It will no longer oppress his people. It will be swallowed up forever. What a precious promise. Those of us who have brushed up against death in your own family, in loved ones, maybe in your own life you've come very close to dying and, and survived. Anyone who has brushed up against death can see the immediate beauty and value and the longing that could take place with a promise like this, that death will be done. The effect of death is over. It won't hurt us anymore. When does this promise come to pass? At the return of Jesus, right? He says, when uh, the perishable has put on imperishable and the mortal has put on immortality, then will come to pass this 
saying. So in a way, we live in this weird in-between time. There's a tension. The work of Jesus Christ by dying on the cross for sins and rising again from the dead accomplished the breaking of the power of death. But it's not until he returns that it will fully and finally be done away with. So we live in this in-between time where we, we still bump up against it. And it still hurts and it still torments us. And yet there is this sure hope. The power is already broken and there's a day coming when it will no longer have any effect on us at all. But how can this be? So he's going to tell us kind of how this happened. How is it that the power of death has been broken? Because if people could have figured out a way to cheat death, we would have done it long before now. Like that's what pretty much the whole medical industry is all about, is trying to figure out how we can defeat diseases and, and cure every sickness so that we can just get as long and long as we possibly can, right? So life is getting longer and longer and longer. But eventually, we run out. We run out of ideas. We run out of ingenuity. We still can't stop it from coming. Everybody dies. And so how could it be that Jesus has removed death's sting and defeated our last enemy? So follow the chain of logic with me, if you will, in verse 56. So he tells us, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to back that up and kind of follow the chain in the opposite direction. So the first thing to say is that the law is the power of sin. The law is basically God's righteous standards, which we have consistently failed to uphold. I don't uphold God's righteous standards all the time, I guarantee you. If anyone else would raise their hand and say, yeah, I've got it totally down, totally following God's law 100%, um, then you just lied and you've broken God's law. Um, the law is basically God's righteous standards, which we have consistently failed to uphold. So the power of sin, then, is the fact that our, in our fallen condition, we are unable to honor God by keeping his commands. So that's what the power of sin is. Sin's power is in the fact that we can't keep God's law. No matter how hard we try, no matter how much self-improvement we attempt, we fail to upkeep God's law. Second, sin is the sting of death. So the, fa the, the very reason that death stings, the very reason that death has an impact and a painful point of attack is sin. Right? And sin is the fact that we can't keep God's law. So the sting of death. In other words, because we are sinners and because we are unable to keep God's righteous standards, we are subject to death, and we, which will have the ultimate effect of separating us from the God who created us for relationship. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. God created Adam and Eve. He gave them no boundaries but one. Don't eat that fruit. What did they do? They ate that fruit, of course. Because if you say, don't hit this button, what am I going to do? Got to press that button, right? Because that's how we are. So we are subject to death as a judgment of our sin. Because we've chosen the wrong thing, because we've ignored God and chosen our own wisdom over his, we are subject to death. And so it separates us from God. That's the power of sin. The power of sin is that we've been separated from God because of our inability to keep his commands and to honor his law. So, in order to defeat death, someone has to fulfill the law, right? Someone has to perfectly uphold all of God's righteous standards as a human being. And 
somebody would have to take sin away. Someone would have to fulfill the law and remove sin. So if somebody could theoretically totally obey the law and remove sin, then death would be rendered powerless, right? Because sin and the law are the power of death. So if the law is totally obeyed and sin is totally removed, death is broken. Good news, friends. That's what Jesus did. That's the story of Easter. The story of Easter is that Jesus, the Son of God from eternity past, came into the world as a human being, fully God and fully man in one person. And as a human being, thus kind of a representative for all of humanity, he totally, fully, perfectly obeyed God's law and upheld his commandments in our place. So the law fulfilled. And he removed sin. John the Baptist said of Jesus in John chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus, in dying on a cross, takes our sins upon himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So there's an exchange that takes place at the cross where Jesus takes upon himself our sin and he confers to us his righteousness. That is what happened at the cross. And then when Jesus was in the grave for three days and then rose again, it was like saying the law has been fulfilled, sin's been taken away, death has no power. Death's sting has been removed. The hope of Easter is that death has lost its power. Here's a couple of applications for this. First of all, don't grieve as those who have no hope. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, that same passage we were reading from earlier about the dead in Christ rising first, he says, those who you love, who have trusted Jesus, who have died, they're going to be the first ones to see him. They're going to be the first ones whose bodies are raised and reunited with their souls and are in the presence of Jesus, glorified and perfected, and then we will come with them. So, yeah, we grieve because it hurts to lose somebody, and there's separation, and there's loss, but our grief ought to be accompanied by and flavored by hope, the hope that it's not the end. The hope that there's more to come. The hope that there's a future glory that he is going to see. My loved one is going to see first, and then I'm going to see it too, and we're going to see it together, and it's going to be glorious. So grieve, but don't grieve as those who have no hope. Because if your loved one was a follower of Jesus, he is going to be raised. And the second application I'd say is, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to die. Death will not have the final word. Now, I know that's easier said than done, because chances are we're all still going to walk out of here and be careful about how we drive home and not walk across the street without checking for cars. And right, we're going we're gonna to be careful. We, so I'm not saying go and be a fool and like put yourself in harm's way, but don't be afraid. We don't have to panic and have anxiety about what what might go wrong or what things are going to happen and what if I die or what if someone else dies it's not the end it's not the end so don't be afraid the hope of Easter is that death has lost its power because just as Paul says there 
The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But, verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life, died on a cross to take our sins away, and then rose from the dead to defeat the power of death once and for all. Thanks be to God. That's the only response that makes any sense. Praise God that this has happened. The hope of Easter is that death has lost its power. All right, so those are the two hopes of Easter that we see in this passage. You are going to be immortal. There is a glorious future in a resurrected and glorified body that is awaiting you. And the power of death is broken. Death is no longer uh, has a hold and an effect over us. So here's what that should do. The hope of Easter should fuel our labor for Jesus. It should... It should give us the energy and the inspiration and the motivation to keep moving forward in our work for the Lord. Look at there in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, I love it when Paul says that, my beloved, you see this compassion, this affection for people. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's just take this verse one word at a time very briefly. Therefore is the first word of 58, which means this instruction, this reflection is going to be based on everything he's just said. Based on what? Based on the hope that you're going to be immortal, based on the hope that death has lost its power. Because those things are true and there's this glorious future coming because of the hope of Easter. And then he's going to give us this command. So because of the hope of Easter, be steadfast. That is steady, consistent, not prone to fits and starts. Consistently, steadily go about the work of the Lord. Steadily. Be immovable. And I think this is like not distracted. Like if I'm going toward a goal and I'm getting attacked from the side, something hits me from the side and knocks me off course, then suddenly I'm, I've been moved from pursuing my goal. And so he's saying here, don't, don't let things and attacks and, and insults and problems and hardships, don't let those things take you off course. Keep going. Why can I keep going? Because I know that the glory of the kingdom of God is coming. I know that death is not the end. I know that Easter brings me the hope of a resurrected, immortal existence in the kingdom of God. So keep moving. Don't be distracted. Don't be blown off course. And then he says, abounding in the work of the Lord. Abounding just means be overflowing. I think it's do lots of it. Work and work and work. Keep going all the time. So what is the work of the Lord? He says, be abounding in the work of the Lord. Preach the gospel. Share the good news with your neighbors. Feed the poor. Clothe the homeless, care for the sick, befriend the lonely, take in the orphan, provide for the widow, defend the weak, and on and on it could go. Anything that takes the heart of God for His creation, His beloved creation, and extends it and gives a, a word of, of encouragement or kindness or, or gives an act of, of grace and love or lifts somebody from a pit that they're in, so to speak, or or tells the good news. The Bible says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. So bring good news. Preach the gospel. Share your faith with your neighbors. Abounding in this all the time. 
We ought to be steadfast and immovable, abounding in these kinds of works and this kind of living, taking risks when necessary to say, I'm going to enter into that conversation. I'm going to enter into that relationship. I'm going to engage here because, last phrase, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Knowing it ends in glory. You know it ends in glory, so get to work. Bring people in. Spread the good news. Share the love of Christ. Expand the kingdom of God with acts of mercy and compassion. I don't know if any of you have seen Back to the Future 2. It wasn't the best of the Back to the Future trilogy. Don't get me wrong. But in it, future Biff, right? He's kind of snuck to the future with Marty, and he finds a sports almanac that lists winning scores from all of these games from 1950 to 2000. So he steals this almanac and then goes back to 1985 with it and starts placing crazy bets on all these games because he knows how they're going to go. He knows the outcome of these games. And so he knows it's going to turn out right for him, and so he places all these crazy bets and gets rich. Now, I am not recommending gambling, all right? I am not endorsing that kind of a behavior. But the point is this. We know that this life is not the end. We know that it will end in glory. We know that death has been overcome, that we're going to be resurrected, we're going to be changed, we're going to be in God's presence forever. So be willing to take the risk. Be willing to make the outrageous bet, so to speak. Be willing to make a move, start the conversation, invite that neighbor over, do the work of the Lord, because we know that it ends in glory. Now I know all this is so much easier said than done. Even knowing these things, even knowing that there's hope in Easter and that death is not the end and all that stuff, I still don't always make the choice to step into the moment. There are times when I have an opportunity. Maybe I'm talking with, uh, with, a, with a new friend or I've just met somebody and we're kind of sharing just where are you from, what do you do, etc. Maybe I see an opportunity, a door open where I could, I could speak about the Lord. I could, I could invite this person uh, to, to, to know or hear about Jesus and to, and to welcome him as Savior. But, 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 I, but I get stuck. You know, one of my personal kind of challenges, struggles, spiritually, emotionally, is what the Bible really calls fear of man. But for me, it expresses itself in a strong desire to be liked. Like, I want this person to like me, think I'm funny, think I'm interesting, whatever. And if I open this door and I start talking about Jesus and I start asking him about, like, his religious background and do you know, like, if you were going to die, would you go to heaven and things like that, he's going to think I'm a weirdo, right? He's going to go, I don't want to talk to that dude anymore because he's always pushing religion down my throat or whatever. Like, I don't, and I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be off-putting to people. And so sometimes that fear makes me go, mm, no, oh, I'll wait. I'll wait for a different opportunity when it's, when it's better, when it's more strategic. And all that is is fear. I'm just going, no, I'm not going to take the risk. Here's the point. Here's how this applies to me and how it applies to all of us. The hope of Easter is that taking those risks, even risking looking like a fool or being the religious nut or whatever, it's okay. It's okay if a guy doesn't like me and he thinks I'm weird. No big deal because my life is going to end in glory. I'm going to be in God's presence in a glorified, resurrected body forever. Who cares if somebody thinks I'm a little weird? That's what I ought to be saying to myself in those moments. And so I think the hope of Easter could meet us in those moments of, of fear, those moments of anxiety where, we, where we're inclined to take a step back instead of taking the risk and engaging. 
So if you're a follower of Jesus, here it is. Go all in. Get to work. Spread the love of Jesus Christ in every opportunity you have. The hope of Easter should fuel your labor for Jesus. If you haven't named Jesus as Lord and trusted him as Savior, if you're here this morning and you say, I'm not sure I've ever really decided that Jesus is the Lord of my life, and, I'm, and, and I've really put my trust and my confidence in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus for my own salvation and for my own relationship with God. If that's you this morning, let today, Easter Sunday of all days, be a day of new life for you. The Bible says that if you will confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's really that simple. It's not a list of commands that you have to keep up with. It's not make this mark so that God might give you some attention or you might be acceptable to him because the point is none of us is acceptable to him because, like we said earlier, we can't keep God's law. Not a one of us has kept God's law. We've all broken it. That's why Jesus, in your place, fulfilled the law and went to a cross for sins and rose from the dead so that you could simply hide yourself in him. So when you're standing before God on that last day, you don't say, look at everything I did, look at all the times I went to church, look at all the money I gave to charities and all the times I tried to feed the poor and all the times I helped the old lady across the street, right? You say, I'm with him. I'm with Jesus. What's his is mine. And you're just hiding behind Jesus. And so God goes, you're good. That's all it takes is to hide yourself in Christ. So I want to invite you today, if you have never done that, this could be the moment for you that that happens. It's not complicated. It's not fancy. There's not this list of requirements. It's just a heart position. It's a heart posture that says, Lord, I want to trust you and I want you to lead my life. Will you come in, forgive my sins and give me new life? I would love you to uh, come and speak with me or with Lindsay or someone from our church group. We would love to visit with you about that if you feel like that's something that the Lord might be uh, doing in your heart today. Let me pray, and then we're going to sing a song of, uh, of celebration, and, uh, and we'll conclude. Father, we are so um, humbled by the reality that Jesus, the Son of God, would come to earth as a man and that he would fulfill God's law, and that he would go all the way to a cross, Lord, to be crucified for sins. Not sins that he committed, but sins that we committed. And that he would then rise from the dead to secure life and eternity with you. What an amazing truth. What an amazing story. Thank you for the invitation to place our lives into that story. To be one of those who has received the new life that Jesus Christ came to offer and to be used by you as one that you would send out into the world as an ambassador, as a, as a witness for Jesus Christ. I do pray that each of our hearts would be drawn closer to you today, that the hope of Easter would plant itself down deep inside us, for those in the room who are followers of Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would just cause that hope to be so clear and so compelling to us that we would be willing to take the risk, have the conversation, engage the relationship. Lord, to do whatever you call us to in the moment, to do the work of the Lord. 
For anyone in the room today who is not a follower of Jesus, has not, uh, not yet made the decision to, to name Jesus as Lord and to trust in Him as Savior, Lord, would you speak to those hearts even now? Call them to yourself. Invite them to yourself. And may the hope of Easter be so inviting to them and so compelling to them that they would make today uh, the day of new life for them. Lord, as we sing one final song, I pray that you would... Um, Fill our hearts with hope and love and let the glory that is to come through Jesus Christ fuel our labor for you in Jesus' name.